Well, we all walk through some dark valleys during our life. God, God gives us sun-kissed mountaintops to enjoy, and He also leads us through some pretty dark valleys. Our circumstances and the state of the world can sometimes be so disturbing um, that we may question God's love, we may question God's goodness. Dark valleys can bring crises of faith. For some people, they solidify their rejection of God and lead them further into sin and misery. Yet for others, dark valleys solidify their love of God and bolster their faith and gratitude. Is there hope in dark valleys? What should we cling to when life is hard and makes no sense? The answer is simple, but please don't interpret simple as cliché. Simple can be quite profound, and if it's true, it is an anchor for the soul. This, this simple truth is not all that needs to be said, but it's easy to remember and gives tremendous comfort and strength. So here it is. Our God always keeps His promises. Our God always keeps His promises. Your hope in dark valleys is not your steadfastness, but that your Father who is with you always keeps His promises. It's not magic. It doesn't eliminate suffering from your life. It doesn't make life easy. It doesn't change your circumstances. This, tr- this truth changes you. Trusting God is knowing His promises and finding comfort and confidence in the fact that God will do all that He said He would do for you who are in Christ. Our only hope in dark valleys is the faithfulness of God. We break our covenants, oaths, vows, pledges, and promises, but our God, He is a covenant-keeping God, an oath-keeping God, a vow-keeping God, a pledge-keeping God, and a promise-keeping God. Must we fear walking dark valleys? No, because our God is a covenant-keeping God, and He is with us. When your faith is weak and your hope is fading, God reminds you in Christ that He always keeps His promises. Scripture is filled with God's promises, and all of them find their yes in Jesus Christ. They're all yours by grace through faith in union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a guarantee of God's promises. Let's start here. What is progressive revelation? Imagine a beautiful painting covered with a black veil. The artist slowly lifts the veil. The veil climbs up the painting, revealing more color and and texture and clarity until the entire painting is exposed for you to see. Progressive revelation is a little bit like that. God revealed His divine truth progressively. He revealed more and more and more over a period of time. The gospel was given in Genesis 3.15, and yet the veil continued to lift throughout the Old Testament until the image was completely unveiled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The late Bible scholar Alec Motyer said, quote, The old view of the Bible was essentially correct. When it's said that the Old Testament is Jesus foreseen, the Gospels are Jesus come, the Epistles are Jesus explained, 
and the revelation is Jesus expected. One great, eternal, age-long, developing and climactic purpose with him as its beginning, middle, and end. End of quote. Progressive revelation is God unveiling his glorious gospel in increasing color and texture and clarity through types and shadows in the old covenant until the coming of Christ, who is revealed through the word and sacraments in the new covenant. So understand, the Old Testament church saw the gospel in types and shadows, but today, because of progressive revelation, we see the gospel in full color and texture and clarity in the apostolic witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it is very exciting then, very exciting, that God is still using the Old Testament to expose our sin and misery and desperate need of Christ to assure us of the glorious redemption we have by faith in Christ and to confirm for us that we have God's favor by faith in Christ who is producing grateful obedience to God in us. The Abraham and Isaac narrative continues to show us the redemption that we have in Christ alone. And it is Christ that makes this narrative poignant. The end of Genesis 17 confirms what Genesis 15 verse 4 implied. Sarah was the chosen mother of the son of promise. Sarah was the chosen mother of the son of promise. God promised Abraham, your very own son shall be your heir, which considering God's design of covenant marriage implied Sarah would deliver the promised son. The unmistakable tension in the story is Sarah's ongoing infertility. But in Genesis 17, verse 16, God reiterated his promise in explicit terms. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Abraham and Sarah struggled with infertility for decades even after receiving God's promise of a son. And now Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. The very idea of Sarah conceiving and bearing a child was preposterous. But God promised. Now consider his promises to Abraham. I will bless you. Your very own son shall be your heir. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Kings shall come from you. Then God reinforced those same gospel promises from another angle. I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah, Sarah, Abraham's infertile wife, was included in these promises and in the fulfillment of these promises. Why was God doing it this way? Simple. The praise of His glorious sovereign grace. God made promises dependent on His sovereign will, His sovereign power, His sovereign grace. Genesis 18 verse 11 says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, meaning it was too late. It was too late. In verse 12, Sarah said, after I am worn out. 
And my Lord is old. What, a, what, what to say about your husband, right? My Lord, she was being respectful, but he's old. Look at the guy. My goodness. And then she says, shall I have pleasure? The promised son looked so out of reach that Abraham pleaded that Ishmael might be the son. But God responded, no, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Ishmael was the son of illicit pleasure and plotting. Isaac was the son of promise and redeemed pleasure. Isaac was the son of promise. God said in Genesis 17, verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And God added in verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. But the tension was still there. Not only was Sarah infertile, she was now old and beyond childbearing years. What was God doing? This was a dark valley. God had promised. By faith at the end of Genesis 17, Abraham obeyed the Lord, and every male in his household was circumcised as a sign and seal of God's promises and their covenant status. Even Ishmael received the sign and seal of the covenant whom God knew would eventually be cut off from his covenant and covenant people because of unbelief. See, without faith, without confidence, without trust in God's promises, in God's faithfulness, in God's covenant keeping, there are no eternal blessings. There are only eternal curses. No matter if one bears the sign and seal or not. Circumcision can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Christ can save you. And he saves by grace alone through faith alone in the promises of God alone. Remember, God makes promises, terrifying promises to those who perish as well. They have promises, they're just not good. Saints, for the glory of his name, God did the impossible and kept his promise. God kept his promise and Isaac was born to Sarah. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Have we read this too many times? It's amazing. That doesn't happen to people that old. No offense if you're that old. Genesis 21, 1 through 7, explain how the Lord returned and did to Sarah as he had promised. The Lord superseded infertility, opened Sarah's womb, and gave Abraham and Sarah a precious little baby boy just as he had promised. They named him Isaac, and they circumcised him on the eighth day. Saints, God kept his promise. God brought a son out of infertility in his timing for his glory to communicate something about himself. If God makes a promise, he will keep it because he is trustworthy. Genesis 21 verse 1 is awesome. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. 
The birth of Isaac was one fulfilled promise closer to the ultimate fulfilled promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The birth of the son of promise out of infertility foreshadowed a greater birth of a greater son of promise born out of virginity. Impossible? Of course that's impossible. But our God does the impossible and He keeps all of His promises. Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12 describe describe how Sarah conceived. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and Him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Sarah received the grace of God, the power of God to conceive a child. By faith, Sarah considered God faithful who had promised, he made a promise. And as imperfect as Sarah's faith was and intermingled with messy unbelief, God sovereignly blessed her through faith. Faith. Next point. Abraham's offspring would be named through Isaac. Isaac. Genesis 21.12 is important. It's quoted in Romans 9 and Hebrews 11. It says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Ishmael left. He ended up living in the wilderness apart from God's covenant people, and he even married a pagan girl from Egypt. He broke from God's covenant. He broke from God's covenant people. It was Isaac who was the son of promise. A lot must be said about Genesis 21, 12. We just don't have time, especially as it connects to Romans 9 and Hebrews 11. There's a lot there, but I'll mention several things. The promised Messiah would come from Abraham through Isaac. And the true Israel of God, God's true chosen people, would be people who trust in God's promised Messiah. Ethnicity was never the point. Isaac's birth reinforces that it was always about God's grace given through faith in his promised Messiah. The life of Isaac confirms for us that God's true people are not ethnic descendants of Abraham and Isaac, but rather those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in God's promises, namely his promised Messiah. Saints, in the new covenant, Paul makes this clear, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That distinction is gone, and true adoption comes down to God's sovereign choice and God's election and God's grace given through faith in Christ. That was always the case. Do you realize what Genesis 21 verse 12 means in relation to salvation? This is very important. Pay attention. The security of salvation for God's people depended upon the security of Isaac. This is big. Salvation would come for God's people through Isaac. Not that Isaac was the Messiah, not that Isaac was the cause of salvation, but that the Messiah who would accomplish salvation must come through the line of Isaac. 
Do you understand the connection between Genesis 3.15 and Isaac? For, for God to keep his promises and for redemption to be accomplished, Isaac must live and have children. God established his covenant with Isaac and Isaac's offspring, so Isaac must live. No Isaac, no Messiah, no redemption. Because God said Isaac was the son of promise. Beloved saints, if you get what I just said, Genesis 22 will come alive for you. You're just going to see stuff that you might not have seen before. It's going to strengthen your faith in God's promises and his trustworthiness. Genesis 22 is intense. There's no way around that. This is a very interesting story. It's a well-known story, but I think a lot of people miss the depth, at least some of the depth, because they lack a covenant theology framework to expose all that's going on here. Covenant theology connects Genesis 22 back to God's sovereign plan of redemption from before the world began. Isaac advances God's covenant promises and foreshadows Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Genesis 22 shows us God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace. You see, Isaac foreshadowed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to read Genesis 22, 1 through 14 again. It's a moving story. So would you think about some very real things for Abraham and, and Sarah? Think about their strong desire for children. Think about their suffering through infertility. Their painful tears. Their sleepless nights. The tension in their marriage. Their weak and distracted faith. Also think about their joy when Isaac was finally born. Their hopes and dreams for their little baby boy. Their long looks at, at Isaac's beautiful little face and gladness in God's faithfulness. Their pleasure of watching Isaac grow up into a young man. Their worship and their praise and gratitude in response to God keeping his promises. Think about all of that, all of the personal stuff that you and I can relate to in their story as you hear these poignant words again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. 
And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's gospel. That's Christ in types and shadows. When you hear those moving words of truth and history, you should be overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus. Isaac's birth and his life and almost death and figurative resurrection foreshadows the birth and life and actual death and actual resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. There is so much in those verses But I'll draw your attention to several prominent points. One, this was not a cruel and sadistic God tormenting Abraham and Isaac. This was a loving father testing the faith of his beloved child and working to strengthen his faith. God never tempts us with evil, but he does lead us through dark valleys to test and to strengthen us. Don't be too upset about God's command to sacrifice Isaac. I know that gets people all worked up. God is gracious to give life, and it's equally true that God is just to take life whenever He pleases. People who use this text to argue that God is a monster are unbelieving fools who don't understand God's goodness and justice, nor His law, nor His gospel. God was testing Abraham's faith to bring him out the other side stronger. The command to kill Isaac, you have to recognize this, came after God's covenantal promise to bless Isaac and his offspring. So the the premise that God is a monster in this narrative ignores the fact that God is good and always keeps His promises. This narrative must be understood in light of God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's trustworthiness, and God's promises. Two, Ishmael was Abraham's son. But see, he deserted, he defected, and Isaac was Abraham's only son of promise, the only son that he had left, and Abraham loved Isaac, and you could say he loved him deeply. This narrative, no doubt, foreshadows and connects to John 3.16, 
The language just echoes of John 3.16. What God asked Abraham to do foreshadows what God did himself. He did it to his only son, and Abraham trusted God's promises in the dark days of his life. Three, Abraham took Isaac to the land of Moriah where Solomon eventually built the temple and where Jesus was eventually crucified. Four, Isaac was likely a strong teenager or young man, not a little child in this story. Isaac was able to make the arduous three-day journey with the men and was able to carry a heavy load of wood on his back for, for the offering. We could say that he was a strapping young lad. That's probably a good way to put it. Five, a three-day journey gave Abraham much time to ponder what God was asking him to do. Those were probably three very dark days of the soul for Abraham. And yet, he proceeded with faith, believing, believing in here, God will keep his promises. Six, think about what Abraham told the two young men in verse five. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Come again to you? That tells you something about Abraham's faith as he was going to sacrifice his beloved son. Abraham was going to stab Isaac to death and burn his body on an altar as a sacrifice to God, and yet he said, come again to you? Why did he say that? Abraham heard God's promises and believed God would keep those promises. Abraham acted in faith because God is always faithful. If God demanded that he sacrifice the son of promise, then God would also raise the son of promise from the dead and therein keep his promises. Now, how do we know that? Well, verse 5 implies it. Verse 8 implies it. But if you go to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, they're explicit about Abraham's faith. Listen, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you understand? Abraham trusted that if God demanded the sacrifice of Isaac, then God would also raise Isaac from the dead. The Abraham and Isaac narrative is about resurrection. This is not a creepy event meant to give religious kooks justification for doing horrible acts of evil because they say God told them to do it. That's not what's going on here. If that is what the conclusion is from this text, the point has been entirely missed. God is faithful. His word is certain. And so if God demands the life of the son whom he made a covenant with, something spectacular is about to happen because our God is a covenant-keeping God. Oh, the faith of Abraham and God's faithfulness. Abraham was committed. The knife was in his hand. He was in the act. And figuratively speaking, God resurrected Isaac and gave him back to Abraham. In the darkest moment of his life, Abraham put his faith in God's promises and in God's trustworthiness. 
as imperfect as their faith may be, true believers believe God in the dark valleys. They believe him. They believe what he says. Seven, Isaac's question must have cut Abraham's heart like a knife. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He didn't know. He was the lamb. He was the lamb. How would a loving father hear those words? Abraham's response was not only confidence in God's providence, but an allusion to the cross. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's faith. That is faith. Eight. It is likely, given the timeline and the details of the story, that Isaac was a strong young man. Keep in mind, his dad was not. He was old, okay? You know where I'm going with that? Isaac can take him. Isaac can take him. And if your dad picks up a knife and is ready to kill you, are you kidding me? I'm throwing some punches or running. Dad, you're here. All right. I can take you, so don't try it. I'm stronger at this point. So why is there no hint of struggle in the story? You ever think about that? I hadn't. I don't think I ever thought about that. There's no hint of struggle. How was Abraham able to bind Isaac? Are you kidding me? To slaughter him? Could it be that Isaac voluntarily submitted himself to his gods and his father's will? The narrative doesn't mention Abraham explaining the situation to Isaac, but my guess is Isaac knew. He's drawn some conclusions. You know? He's getting it. He found out, and he submitted himself to the plan. He was bound, I think, perhaps, to restrain any natural reflexes or to ensure an accurate, swift, and compassionate death blow. Isaac foreshadowed Christ. Whatever the exact details of the story, which are unknown, we're reading into that a bit. The focal point is Abraham's faith, which resulted in profound obedience. 9, verse 10 says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And that should move you. And that should encourage you. That's kind of an odd thing to say. It should encourage you, but it should. Abraham feared God. He passed the test. He didn't abandon God or his promises in the dark valleys. He believed, he trusted, he acted because of God's faithfulness. Ten, I believe there is strong exegetical case to be made that the angel of the Lord in verse 11 is the pre-incarnate son of God. The knife was in Abraham's hand and the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Could it be that the Christ prevented the death blow? And again, the words of the angel of the Lord reverberate, John 3, 16. Isaac was the son of promise, but not the son of promise, the lamb whom God would provide to take the blow. 11. How gracious of God to provide a ram to be slaughtered instead of Isaac. That phrase, instead of Isaac, in verse 13, is significant in theology. It's a clear reference to substitutionary atonement, 
where one is slaughtered and sacrificed in the place of another so that the one spared could live. Isaac was spared that day, but the ram that God provided wasn't. The ram took the knife. The ram was incinerated as an offering to God. This is a clear allusion to the cross. But notice, it's only a type and shadow of a greater and more beautiful substitutionary atonement, that of the Christ, the Lamb of God. Twelve, Abraham named the place the Lord will provide because God did provide. And many years after that, in a place not far from there, God provided another lamb, another beloved son of promise, his only begotten son who was sacrificed to God. Now, I want you to think about something. This is an uncomfortable and horrific story. God commanded Abraham, just let this sink in, to stab and slaughter his only beloved son. That's brutal violence that you don't want your mind to think about. After killing Isaac, Abraham was to light his son's body on fire. That's violence you don't want your mind to think about. It's uncomfortable. It's ghastly. It's unheard of. God intends this story to shake us, to rattle us, to say something that we're squirming and uncomfortable. How can this be? God, why would you do things this way? How could you command this of of Abraham and his precious son? You're meant to feel this tension building up inside of you. And here is why that God wants this to, to totally blow you away. It's Romans 8.32, which says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gospel contains brutal violence. God graciously stopped the death blow for Isaac, but he did not stop it for his only son, Jesus. Because of our horrific covenant breaking, God did not spare his sinless faultless and glorious son. God brought the crushing blow of his justice and his wrath upon his only begotten son. God offered up his son of promise as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There was no ram in the thicket that day. Jesus was the ram whom God provided to die in our place so that we could be spared and we could live Abraham didn't have to watch his son bleed and burn, but God poured out his just wrath and hell upon his son in order for us to be saved through his shed blood. Jesus Christ, the preeminent son of promise, the son promised in Genesis 3.15, died on a brutal and bloody and violent cross. The scene was ghastly. The scene was nauseating. As the horrific justice and wrath of God crushed the promised Christ. But God received him back. God received him back. He raised him to life again. Christ rose from the dead to conquer sin, Satan, death, and hell. And he rose from the dead to conquer your fear in dark valleys. 
The Old Testament church saw this gospel in types and shadows. But saints, saints, we see today this gospel of Christ in full color, texture, and clarity in the preaching of God's word and in the sacraments which we receive by faith. The black veil has been lifted and you are looking at the beautiful Christ trade for you in the preaching of the word and in the right administration of the sacraments. The Abraham and Isaac narrative is not ultimately a horrific and ghastly story. It's ultimately beautiful beyond belief because it showcases the supremacy of Christ in salvation. The horrific death of Christ and his astonishing resurrection is evidence that our God keeps all His promises. And your salvation is not dependent on you, but rather the sovereign purpose and power and provision of God. Do you find comfort and confidence in you? Is that where your focus is? You? And your ability to be so strong and to make it and to persevere and to endure all of this? Are you the reason for your confidence? Find your comfort and confidence in this. God lifted the sharp knife of his just wrath and judgment and delivered the blow on his only begotten son who was pierced on the cross for your sin and misery so that by grace you would be crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, Unto eternal glory, and you would receive redemption by faith. God made promises to Abraham. God makes promises to you. He keeps them because he is faithful. And he slaughtered his son. He's going to keep his promises. They're for you. So I end with this simple encouragement. Trust God because he always keeps his promises. His promises. The good things that he wants to give you. You can't just be saying, oh, I think that God's going to promise me this stuff. His promises. Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? Will he not also with him graciously give us, and what does it say? All things. All things. Your hope in the dark valleys of this life is not that your circumstances will change and life will be easy. That's not where the hope is. There's something better than that. Your only hope is that God did not spare his only son in order to take you for his own. To make you His. When you trust in Christ, you have in Him all the promises of God. The ultimate promise being this, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a promise. Your hope in dark valleys is that God is your God and you belong to Him. Believe it. Believe God. If He says it, it's true. It will happen. It is done. Believe God because, and here it is again, He keeps all of His promises. 
Let's pray. God, you are so kind and good and spectacular in the fact that you can keep all your promises. You make promises that from the vantage point that we're at here on this earth would look like, how on earth could you make that happen? Look at all these details that are involved in making that happen. Well, that's your sovereignty, God. You are sovereign. You're in control. You have a plan, and it's working out. Well, that's confusing, God, because there's a lot of things like the Abraham and Isaac story that totally throw us off. We say, how could this be? But God, you are working your plan. You made promises, good promises, to those who would trust in you, those in covenant with you. God, if we believe, if we have confidence in your trustworthiness, we have all of your glorious promises. God, we didn't look through Scripture at the unbelievable promises given. We mentioned a few, but there are so many in there, God. I pray that you put a hunger for your word inside of us that we would actually know what you promise. This Bible is amazing. It gives us incredible promises that we can claim for our own by grace, through faith, in Christ, and possessing the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. But God, we have to know your promises. So I pray that you would lead your people to hunger and thirst to hear about your promises in your sacred word. That they would long for the preaching of the word. That they would long for the sacraments to see in visual display the glorious gospel. And that they would say, those promises are all mine because my Savior Jesus Christ has paid for it all for me. So God, I pray that you would work grace in our congregation, that we would love you and trust you and be grateful for the grace that you give us in Christ and that we would look to your promises and find great hope and comfort in the dark valleys of life that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt you will come through because you always keep your promises. All for your glory, for the fame of Jesus, we pray. Amen.